0: Kuzuzangbo. You are listening to Bhutan Dialogues, a forum to discuss ideas and issues in development. Bhutan Dialogues is a joint initiative of the Lodin Foundation and the United Nations in Bhutan, held every second Thursday of the month in Thimpo. I am Karma Punso, the host for the conversations, and our guest for today is Dr. Will Parks. Today we will discuss growing up in COVID's shadow. This dialogue has three parts. Mr. Gerald Daly, the resident coordinator of the United Nations in Bhutan, will introduce the session, followed by my conversation with the guest. The session ends with a Q&A with the virtual audience.
1: My resolve is such that until the task is accomplished, I will persevere even if lightning should strike from above, the space in between collapse, or the earth below move. Royal Casho on civil service reform. Kuzusanbola. Welcome to your UN House and to the 34th session of Bhutan Dialogues with the title "Growing Up in COVID's Shadow." The pandemic has changed many things. In particular, it has had a devastating impact on children. And this is not something a vaccine alone can fix. COVID has taken an enormous toll on children, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. It has shut children out of schools that taught and cared for them. We will almost need a new deal for an entire generation of children to give them the opportunity to catch up. But even during this uncertain time, it's a sure thing that our children are still learning, growing and developing. We are concerned about the significant impact the pandemic is going to have on the children's learning and development. While young children's social realities and futures are changing substantially in the light of lockdowns, school closures and social distancing, it is more important than ever to ensure that we do our best to provide opportunities and experiences that enable every child to grow, learn, develop. Growing up in COVID shadow does not have to mean that children are left behind. As this is the first Bhutan Dialogues of 2021, I wish to draw your attention to the fact that this year is also Bhutan's 50th anniversary as a member state to the UN. Those of us who serve both Bhutan and the UN in this auspicious year are indeed fortunate. Our speaker for today is Will Parks, who is representative of UNICEF Bhutan. He has worked in over 40 countries over a 26-year period, leading the design and management of programs that have achieved results for children while building partnerships with communities, governments, civil society organizations academia, the private sector and media. Our host, Dr. Karma Fonso, is both a disruptive thinker and a social worker in the way he promotes social entrepreneurship among the nation's youth, the vast majority of whom are either unemployed or underemployed. He is also a writer in digital residence for the Buddha Nature Project at Sadra Foundation. My closing. In terms of your written questions in the chat box, please keep them short and focused. Seren Chuki will be compiling the questions and will read them out as usual so our speaker, Will Parks, can respond. I'll end with a quote from the Secretary-General. COVID-19 is not only a wake-up call, it is a dress rehearsal for the world of challenges to come. The pandemic has taught us that our choices matter. As we look to the future, let us make sure we choose wisely. Tashi and Happy Losar.
0: So Dr. Parks, uh, welcome to the 34th Bhutan Dialogues. Um, even before COVID, uh, we have been living in the VUCA world, as they say, volatile, uncertain, uh, complex and ambiguous times. And then with COVID, We've gone through a tumultuous year and uh, since our last Bhutan Dialog session we've had the second very long lockdown, the first case of Covid death, we have had a real community transmission, quite a lot of things have happened here in Bhutan. And uh, it gives us more compelling reason to reflect and think. And Bhutan Dialogues is set up with the aim to think more, to discuss our ideas of human progress, to refine our development practices. We often say it's a platform to practice mindful listening and uh, light speech, courageous thinking. And uh, for today, uh, to talk about COVID and education, it's a great honor to have you because with your uh, very strong background in public health, rich expertise in development and now leading UNICEF here in Bhutan, you're the the most appropriate candidate we can have for this session so thank you for joining us and as always we always have the we have the speaker introduce himself or herself so that the audience knows a little bit about you what kind of life you had until now to bring you to where you are any episodes anecdotes that really shaped your life triggered inspirations can you share this
2: Absolutely, and thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kamer and uh, Jerry also for having me here, and it's a real honor and privilege to be the first of 2021 in the Bhutan Dialogue uh, session. So uh, let me just reflect a little bit about my life. I was born in the United Kingdom, uh, but I'm Australian by citizenship, so that already gives you a sense that my life has Mm -hmm. been spent traveling a lot. Uh, and I'm very honoured to have had those privileges of visiting many, many countries um, and also moving between the two hemispheres of the world frequently. My earliest sort of memories of of why I'm where I am now is that I was given some leadership responsibilities, um, even in primary school, Um, and then on to my secondary school I became head of both of those schools. and and moved into leadership positions um, from that point onwards. And for me, leadership is an extraordinarily important uh, honour that I've had through my whole career. And maybe when we talk about the books I've chosen, we can come back to some of the reasons why leadership to me is so important. And and I'm still learning to be a leader. Jim Grant, who was the executive director of UNICEF, um, probably one of our most famous executive directors, had a huge influence on my life, uh, as did my father, who was a professor of mathematics. Um, And it's just quite ironic that those two father figures in my life, they died in the same month in 1995. Um, That really was the launch of my career at the time. Um, And I'd always dreamed of being a UNICEF representative, even when I was at school, uh, just a few years back we had a 30-year reunion from my secondary school and my colleagues and friends from there were saying to me what do you do now i said i'm a unicef representative and they could still remember at school that that's what i said congratulations of course another great shape in my life is is ranjana my my wife um, my soulmate um, she's a yoga practitioner so you can get a sense also of the the spirituality that I have in my um, life at the moment through her, um, and of course four children who mm-hmm. have caused tremendous pride through the years and they're doing really well. And again, they're spread around the world now. Mm-hmm. So really it's a journey of a leader um, who's had the privilege to make friends in 43 countries um, and have the honour to put children at the front of all of my efforts. Last year, ever since
0: uh, the the travel restrictions were imposed on us for good reasons. Uh, I've actually had a lot of opportunity to reevaluate my life, let's say think and reflect on what should be the real sort of goal, purpose of my the rest of my life and what could be done to enhance it, to achieve the goals. I'm sure you had plenty of re- reflection as well. So if you look back at the COVID period we had. Of some 11 months or so, I think almost 12 months now since uh, uh, closing the borders in March last year. What would you say is the most important, or even two important lessons that you learnt, that insights you sort of came up with, perhaps to even further develop your leadership skills?
2: Yeah, I, I think the last year, as we have all experienced mm. across the world, has, has challenged many of our assumptions of the way life was. Mm. Um, and now I think we're seeing opportunities to reboot um, how we do our work, how we deal with families, how we deal with travel, for example. Um, for me, I was always wanting to write a book about leadership so in the lockdown period, I started writing this straight away and have built um, a manuscript now that needs a lot more work, but that's one of the things that have kept my, my mind engaged in, in the lockdown. But I think just looking at how Bhutan has managed with the lockdown, you know, I, I really applaud the leadership of His Majesty. Um, when I looked across the world at different leadership models that we were seeing coming from various countries, Bhutan can be very, very proud of the way in which the, the epidemic was handled here, um, and uh, extraordinary leadership I saw from the king, uh, inspired me further to write this book, the um, working title of which is Compassionate Leadership. And I'll come back to that maybe later. Uh, I think one of the things that For me as a leader, it was really important was the care and support that I could give the staff Mm. of UNICEF, Mm. but by extension, um, the rest of the UN through my colleagues and the other UN teams, and just making sure that they were knowing that there was always support and empathy being offered and sympathy also Mm. through these very hard months um, Mm. that they were trying to work and deliver results for children also. Uh, so that compassion in leadership, I mm. wanted to practice much more. So I, I pursued that.
0: When can okay, um, we expect the book? <laughs> <laughs> is it too soon. It's too, it's too soon. I it think it? probably next year. I, I'll be <laughs> oh, with it, yeah. Not that far away. Um,
2: but I think there were some other things which were happening as we were facing this lockdown and, and uh, the situation in Bhutan that really got me thinking, and it's it's beyond Bhutan. So, you know, Bhutan, I think, it has done very, very well uh, when you compare what has been happening into, in other countries. But there are some looming crises mm. that we need to be aware of that are mm. going to affect Bhutan, that is beyond Bhutan's borders, perhaps mm. even beyond Bhutan's control, mm. even though they're a member state of the United Nations, and recognising 50 years this year of mm. Bhutan's engagement with the United Nations is great. But... The last three decades across the world, we have seen extraordinary advancements in human development, and Britain has been extraordinarily impressive in the gains mm. that it has made. 1950, in the country, the, the life expectancy was 36 years, and now we're looking at something like 68, 69 years, mm. in the space of five, five decades. <coughs> and um, it's longer for women, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. You've seen child mortality now. The country has the lowest child mortality in the region. 16 deaths per thousand.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, life births. Tremendous mm-hmm. progress. You've got almost universal uh, primary education mm-hmm. with gender parity, which is mm-hmm. phenomenal.
0: Yeah, For higher education, I think there are even more women than men. <laughs> yeah,
2: another pattern which should be yeah. you know, applauded. But mm-hmm. um, there are the reasons that has happened is mm-hmm. because we've managed as a globe to see... Um, The lifestyle and and earnings of of countries, it's becoming more uh, equal Mm. Uh, and that has driven progress because there's been less inequality developing over the world and we've also seen new technologies, new deliveries, uh, HIV treatments, insecticide, treated bed nets, we've seen uh, advocacy for getting girls into schools. These have transformed countries uh, by, by these two things reduced inequality and technologies that have advanced progress even in poor countries. What has worried me is that all of this great work and progress could be undone Mm. because of COVID and because of what is happening geopolitically um, in the world today. I I was recently reading an article about um, vaccinations for COVID. So far there's 128 million vaccines have been given, have been actually injected into the human population. But 60% or so of all of those are in just 10 countries. So we, we've got a really disproportionate vaccination process of the world going on here, mm. where the vast majority of countries mm. have, have not started vaccinating and will not start vaccinating for many, many months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've got to really uh, think about the world in terms of its equality. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it played out with Mm -hmm. the disproportionate number of vaccinations happening in just 10 countries. Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, when you look at vaccination, or even before vaccination, the impact of COVID, you mentioned um, things beyond Bhutan or beyond the control of Bhutan. I think a lot of us here, we know about the impact of COVID through anecdotes, through personal stories. But uh, what would be the real sort of comprehensive picture, a cohesive picture, having data, and some analysis of the global situation, and also with education in Bhutan, with UNICEF, you must have access to a lot more data than most others, most
2: of us do. As Jerry mentioned at the beginning, COVID Nineteen uh, as a virus has not mm. really impacted children in terms of its health of the health impacts because mm. children have are not amongst the most vulnerable from mm. this from this virus. But the shadow impact of COVID on children is enormous and it's mm. particularly profound uh, in the education system all around the world. So back in March last year, when COVID was really hitting its heights in terms of of fear and, and rapid spread, and it's still rapidly spreading and resurging in many places. But 182 countries in the world decided in March last year to have national school closure, nationwide closure of learning institutions, 182 countries. That affected the learning of 2.4 billion learners from preschool to tertiary. We have never seen 2.4 billion learners not be learning. Mm. Um, and even now in February, we, we still have 28 countries who have not opened up their institutions, affecting some 220 million learners still today. Um, now, in Bhutan, a decision was made by the government to, to close schools, um, university back last year. It was not a recommendation made by UNICEF. It was government by government deciding to do that. Of course, it's easy in hindsight to say, why did we do that? When a recent study of 191 countries proved that school status, whether it's open or closed, is not driving transmission. Schools are not driving transmission of COVID-19 when they're open. And closing them has even worse effects on children's learning. So I think um, education systems around the world have really, really, hit hard and we will see probably the after effects of this in years to come in terms of children who were just on the cusp of staying in schools when those schools were closed they will not come back and it's always the most vulnerable and the poorest that affect or get affected first even when classes 9 and 12 were opened back in July last year and progressively through the second half of last year we could see the statistics in Bhutan 180,000 children out of school doing remote learning, Uh, 32,000 of those 180,000 had to be further supported because they didn't have access to TV and they didn't have access to online resources. But we still helped with the ministry's leadership to make sure they were receiving educational materials. And I have to say, teachers in preschool and in primary school and secondaries, teachers went beyond their call of duty Mm -hmm to support their students. An amazing series of stories collected of of people living in remote hills who were ECCD, early childhood care development facilitators, walking to to get to the children they really wanted to help keep learning. Um, But when the school started to open up again, we already saw um, over 300 students didn't come back and... My fear is that we really need to work hard to make sure that we get every child who needs to be in school back into school because we are seeing statistics elsewhere where significant numbers are not returning to school. Why? Because they have been married in a child marriage. Why? Because they've taken a job because of necessity. Um, And small little factors may just be enough to keep them out of the school. And we're going to be seeing education perhaps and learning in particular set back maybe a decade because of school closures. For a poor child, even a month out of school can affect them for the rest of their life.
0: I thought the numbers were much higher. You say 300 were left out when the schools reopened.
2: Yeah, well Um, this is the statistics that um, was gathered by the Ministry of Education. um, And we haven't seen the effect yet of opening all of the schools. Um, I'm, I'm fearing that unless we get our messaging and our support right, we will be see be seeing a, a higher number of school dropouts. In, in addition to
0: um, missing the learning opportunities, I'm sure domestic violence involving children must have gone up. And then I, I've heard of poor parents who had to feed the children at home, which has also been a problem. But well, uh,
2: just on that, we, we know if you compare data that Renew, uh, one of the civil society organizations, was collecting uh, in 2019 compared to 2020, cases of gender-based violence increased by 36% in 2020 compared to 2019. Now, you can obviously see the lockdowns and restrictions and stress and mental health, loss of jobs... Children out of school, not learning, um, has had a, a traumatic effect on families. And to see that increase in gender-based violence is symptomatic of some of the stresses that are happening. Consultations with, with children and with our discussions with partners around the country in terms of what is happening, what has happened to children during lockdown, they themselves also have been facing some severe problems. Uses of hotline mm-hmm. to talk about mental health issues has been five times the amount um, than we've seen in, in previous years. So given all
0: these um, problems in the shadows of COVID, or the indirect uh, difficulties of problems that COVID has created, with hindsight, knowledge and insight, what would be the best way as we go forward in terms of school management? The, even at, towards the Um, around the beginning of the COVID restrictions, there were suggestions that the approach to school closure should be differentiated, meaning there shouldn't be, across the board, nationwide closure at once. Um, What are other options the state has, the schools have, to, in some ways, actually, keeping the children at school is perhaps safer than (laughs) letting them go home. So, UNICEF must have thought through this. Uh, What would be a better way? learning lessons
2: from the past. Well, I I certainly think that the the Ministry of Education had done a lot of homework, Mm. um, and we were obviously supporting some of the thinking that was happening last year. Um, And we've seen in other countries lessons learned, and all of those lessons were shared and Mm. and discussed. Um, As we see schools starting to be reopened now, which is great, and, and of course that all began in July last year, That's one of the lessons learned, you progressively open um, with a fallback plan should you want to close it again. Um, I want to repeat the fact that a recent study, global study, showed that even if you keep schools open, it doesn't change the transmission rates of COVID. Um, So we should really be now striving to open up all (coughs) education facilities in Britain. Mm with all of the safety measures that we know work. And we've seen that can be done. And I think in Bhutan, we have the the type of society in which people will follow the regulations, um, and we just must make sure people understand that even a progressive opening, we should end up with all schools reopened as soon as possible. This requires, for example, investment in water and sanitation, facilities in schools, and this is a really good investment to be making regardless of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, We should be really helping teachers mentally prepare and support teachers, social support for teachers because they're going to face some real difficulties coming back in terms of not having been teaching for a a year or so and their care for children and seeing children probably struggle when they come back. We need to help teachers prepare and be supported. And, of course, we need to help the children themselves not only come back into the classroom, which, by all accounts, thousands of them are desperate to do, um, but they're also going to need catch up. They've lost a year of really you know, solid education. Um, many have been doing the remote learning, but it's really not as sophisticated mm. as it can be in mm. the classroom. So there's some catch-up that has not mm. been done.
0: What would be um, the strategies that you would recommend for such catching up? There's lots of months of work that
2: is to be done. And we've got to carefully not overload children and teachers as well in terms of doing that. But I think in terms of um, reshaping the curriculum so that the, the learning that needs to be taken now is a, a very sophisticated curriculum. And the Ministry of Education has already revitalized its curriculum, it's prioritized mm-hmm. its trimmed, So it's it's lightened the, the content in terms of what is absolutely essential. And I think that's how you can catch up because you've got less to cover. But the, what you're covering is the most important. So that's one. And I think in terms of uh, children investing their time, um, we also need to be thinking about what we've learned through the COVID experience is that we may be able to have a blended approach so that you can do not only lighten the content and make it essential, but you can have children learning at home and really problem solve themselves and bring that knowledge to the classroom. So this is an opportunity to transform the way in which
0: Hmm.
2: teaching is done, but also most importantly, how learning is done. So I think these two things are are important. So how the schools you think will be good? Homeschooling, if parents can, can support that, but mm. it's more about using the, the, the technologies that we now have. And if we can radically get all of the schools connected onto the Internet um, in terms of their connectivity, then there's a whole world of learning out there that can be done by children themselves. Mm. The only caveat to that is we must make sure there are safety measures mm. to protect children with this online exposure. Mm. But I just want to go back to your other point about uh, the decision that was made to shut all schools. Uh, Now that we're seeing them open up again, we can really have parts of the country where schools should not be shut, even if we have community transmission return. Um, And I know from the Ministry of Education's work with the Ministry of Health, there was quite sophisticated risk mapping done very early on. Which showed that there are quite a few schools in different parts of the countries that are very low risk and i'd just be urging the government mm. to not consider closing schools again nationwide mm. if there's school closures it should, it should happen because of whatever risks there are in localized areas we need to have school closure as the last resort
0: um, well if there was a very good risk management mapping done and Just curious why that was not uh, um, used. uh, Bhutan's uh, topographic uh, situation, uh, valleys being isolated, itself actually (laughs) helps quite a lot in stopping these transmissions if you perhaps create nice checkpoints at the passes and the borders. But I want to go back to um, the topic about educational reforms. Recently, His Majesty has now issued a command to. Um, reform the education system you brought up the importance of digitizing educational material um, what would be from your point of view um, the best way for Bhutan to um, to reform um, there's at the moment I think two major thoughts one group arguing that our education system is not producing graduates that will meet the labor market demands The other actually arguing, no, education is for self-development of the people. It shouldn't be just based on the skills needed in the market. Which group of thought would you (laughs)
2: promote? I I think you'll know my answer would be, it has to be a blend. Um, I want to start with this concept that um, when we're thinking about transforming the education system Mm -hmm. here, uh, we should focus on learning. Learning should be the, the, the result of education. Um, and I think the, His Majesty's Kashaw is really signaling that we have to be thinking about how will our children uh, be able to live in a 21st century. They have to learn a whole range of things which are not necessarily the current content of our education in Bhutan at the moment. Um, the fixation with you know, taking exams, And passing exams and just getting through that um, I think we all agree that that has to change because there's a lot more to life than just passing grade 10 Mm -hmm. and grade 12. Mm -hmm. Why we can't be thinking about building an education system that allows the child to learn wherever he or she is and build an education system that delivers learning to the child online through TV, through experiences that are outside of the school physically. Uh, Use the schools as places like sort of residential where your children are able to share what they've learned outside of the school. Uh, Assess learning rather than take examinations. And I'm really pleased that the ministry actually have introduced a global framework globally-based framework that allows to follow a cohort of students every three years and assess their learning. It's not exam-based. It's really Mm -hmm. examining whether they are learning life skills, for example. Mm -hmm. So you can think about building a learning environment that begins wherever the child is and gives opportunities for that child to learn um, from all sorts of experiences. Mm -hmm. And the, the school, the physical structure of the school and the teacher Is simply another platform where Mm. learning can occur. It shouldn't be the only one. Mm. Cultivating a a culture of lifelong learning and an interest in learning is what we want an education Mm. system to produce. And a generation after generation of problem solvers and people who can live with each other and solve problems together Mm. I think is really, really important as a set of principles.
0: Mm. Mm. Mm very much like uh, your use of problem-solvers. That's what I often say um, when I talk about the Buddha introducing a strategy for problem-solving in life. The same page, I mean, I use this imagery of um, two pots. One education system, perhaps the one that we currently have, is about filling that pot. (laughs) The other one is more from uh, the Buddhist uh, theory of a lamp in the pot, that we have to break that pot so the lamp can actually sh- shine. So perhaps there's more of that, the second uh, uh, process we need to cultivate <laughs> rather than focus on filling the pot, which seem to be the norm in the schools at the moment.
2: Yeah. I think one other um, insight I have for for how that learning journey can really be of, of value and, and support for Bhutan neuroscience, Mm. the the study of brain formations and and how our brains work has radically transformed Mm. our understanding of how important the early years of life are. Far more than the later years of life. Unfortunately for us, we're not going to learn as well as we did when we were (laughs) (laughs) still. That's not necessarily kind of keep learning, and we should um, keep learning um, throughout our lives. But neuroscience has shown us that the the brain development in the first five years of life is never repeated again in our life course. Investing in early childhood education is an extraordinarily powerful way to change change a nation because you're preparing children to get ready for learning at school through games and dance Mm -hmm. and all sorts of great interactions that we're now seeing being delivered in the country, in, in Bhutan, but to only 25% of the population of that age group. We've got to rapidly expand Mm. access for all children around about the ages of 3 to 5 to get into early childhood education facilities. Mm. And it doesn't have to be a physical facility. We're showing in remote parts of the country that facilitators can go go foot by foot and, and help or online in little WhatsApp groups, and parents can help. Parents have a crucial role to play. But I think the the learning system and how to transform learning in Bhutan can be really radically improved if we give access to all children in their early years to learn, because that fits with when the brain is changing and expanding in extraordinary ways. The second window of opportunity to really focus in on is the early teenage years, because at that point, the brain starts to interconnect within itself. So problem solving and social skills are really important to embed when a child's adolescent brain is going through this second rapid and massive change. So we have these two windows. If we invest in these two, as much as we can, quality learning uh, and stimulation, etc., we Will, will transform Bhutan. Mm. And yeah. I think the, the cashier from His Majesty is pinpointing that's what us. we need mm. to invest in. Mm. Um, and we're hoping with the ministry to try and make sure that all, all the schools get connected to the Internet of Good Things yes. um, with appropriate safety measures for online security, etc. So that uh, schools all around the country can utilise what's on the, the World Wide Web. Which is extraordinary opportunities for children to learn. Yeah, I've also been
0: reflecting on these two stages of um, youth. In fact, uh, UNICEF has been involved in setting up uh, early child care and development centres. Uh, Lowden have also helped uh, Lowden or worked for Lowden to set up five. And COVID has been a real challenge for these ECCD centres, that the facilities, as, as you mentioned, had to uh, reach the children. Remotely, um, and in case of preschool children, I don't think uh, virtual learning or digital tools would be really helpful. In fact, I think that there's too much uh, influence of digital technology on the young child's brain at the moment. <laughs> so I don't know how much we can uh, promote that. Then, for the um, early teenage adolescence, again, I have been uh, meeting young people non-end often a lot of them come with uh, inadequate let's say sometimes even none of the sexual health awareness the kind of hormonal changes their body is going through they seem to have very little information about substance abuse and alcoholism which they are going to slowly get exposed to at that stage and then also social media literacy we know so many underage children are on facebook and other media platforms but they don't really know what is they is the truth, they don't know how to process this, and I think there is serious, and there will be more, problem of um, screen addiction. What would be your solution to that? Uh, UNICEF must have been thinking about these problems for the
2: youth. Last year, uh, I wrote an op-ed for, I think it was Kunzo, and specifically pinpointed the dangers of this exposure to online Mm -hmm. learning. Um, of course, it, it was absolutely valuable as a component of making sure children could continue to learn. But you're absolutely right. Unless there is um, parental understanding of what needs to to be discussed with your child about how much online time they have, what they're doing online, unless technology companies and governments are setting standards and regulations and safety precautions, unless teachers and children themselves are understanding how to use online materials um, you are running risks by just leaving people to be connected Mm. Um, we want children to to interact and online is just one opportunity for them but they, you're absolutely right, they have to understand as children and and as parents we need to guide and understand ourselves, technology companies and social media platforms have to be um, Securing and and making sure things are safe. Um, And uh, government needs to be setting standards and regulations. So all of these things have to come together. But I I would want children to get access, but it has to be everything in moderation. Mm. Um, And I think we're also seeing in other countries um, people in COVID times have just been online. That's all they've been. And they're really struggling mm. to interact coming out of yes. lockdowns because they haven't seen people for a long time and, and their skills to interact are have been shaped by their online experiences. Mm. Um, I wouldn't deny online interaction, but I just mm. keep it as a, one of the many elements of learning and interaction that there is um, and encourage parents particularly to have honest discussions and conversations mm. with with your children as I do I, I do with mine to say is everything okay um, who are you seeing? is there any anything you need to talk to me about so a lot of parental guidance in that um, I want to uh, come
0: to one of the things that we discussed um, I think a couple of months ago when we had a conversation now with one of the things that is happening as a COVID shadow is um, the economic difficulties, the financial difficulties that marginalized disadvantaged groups face. And a lot of children are within that group. So, in terms of social protection schemes, um, our relief efforts definitely work so well. The government, His Majesty, the government have done so well to look after the uh, people in difficulties. But if we think, if we learn the lessons from the past and then think forward, What kind of social protection schemes would work best for such emergencies uh, that uh, may not be then
2: ad hoc, but rather established uh, programs? Last year we saw um, a very responsive um, scheme, the Kidu, from Mm -hmm. His Majesty's Office, um, supporting, um, I think by September, some 33,000 people had been supported by the Kidu Relief because of COVID and Mm -hmm. the knock-on effect it had on employment and people losing their jobs. So including in that was some 14,000 children were also helped in terms of their families receiving kidu. So it's very targeted to people who applied. Mm -hmm. I think one of the lessons that we can take forward is that that is something that, if it's made universal rather than targeted, in other words, everybody Mm -hmm. gets support through a social protection mechanism, um, we've seen other countries initiate that already had it in place, and it makes sure that everybody has some buffer ahead of the crisis. So you don't respond, you, no. you're proactively protecting with a social protection safety net, as it were. Mm. The, the problem we've seen with, with other countries in terms of having targeted cash transfers Is that you're often not picking up people who are in the informal sector, who are maybe didn't lose their job officially because they never had a job; they were learning, Mm -hmm. earning hand to mouth. Now in Bhutan, um, the informal sector accounts for about eighty-seven percent of employment, Um, and so if there people in the informal sector didn't officially lose their job, um, they may not have got any adequate support. So that's called the missing middle in terms of people who, who don't receive any support and don't have any mechanism to receive support. At, at one end, you have pension schemes and, and maybe social assurance for civil servants, And at the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are extremely vulnerable and can get s- some social assistance. But there's a big chunk in the middle of missing middle who don't have any of these either. So this is where we've seen other countries reform their tax system, people contribute through tax, and then the state responds by giving a universal, regular cash transfer. Not in times of an epidemic or a crisis or a disaster, but as a regular investment in families. And having that ahead of time and having it universal allows... Um, if, if a shock or a pandemic or a disaster hits, you already got the systems in place. Um, now, people have said, where do you find the money for that? And in some countries, they have done a lot of reform of the tax to make sure people are contributing through tax, and then you create the fiscal space to support a universal cash transfer of some sort. Um, and... People have also said, well if we pay everyone, surely the cost of such a system is too high. Actually, most of the time it's cheaper because targeted cash transfers are often mis-targeting. People mm-hmm. who should get it don't, <coughs> um, and people who shouldn't really need it get it. So there's there's a lot of error in targeted cash transfers as opposed to universal.
0: But I think one of the main questions, as you rightly pointed out, would be where do we get that money? and um, recently, we have read in news about uh, government's austerity plans to sort of cut off uh, the budget for uh, school uniforms and stationaries. Some 12,000 children who are in need wouldn't be getting those. What's your take on that? Or should the state's response be to that? know uh, yeah, this is this the right way of practicing austerity? Or
2: it's been shown. Um, around the world in lots of different crises that are, that are not maybe triggered by a pandemic but are a knock-on economic effect. So when we looked at austerity measures that were done during the 1980s in structural readjustments, many, many governments decided that it was better to take money out of the social sector to try and keep the economy alive and um, uh, we saw it again in the Asian economic crisis, and we saw it again in the global financial crisis, mm-hmm. um, and we have seen it in other countries because of COVID. There is, there is decisions that occur where people think we have to drive the economy, and the only place to look for that money is trimming the social sector budget. But Dr. Kama, one of the things I, I've always said in, in the years that I've been working is that budget to a social sector is is not an expenditure. It's an investment. And you get returns on investment when you make sure all children are in school and their education is an investment, their learning is an investment. So we have to be very wise when we make cuts in the social sector. If it's because we think it's an expenditure that we cannot afford, maybe that's the wrong way of looking at it. Maybe we should be saying that Keeping stationery and, and uniforms for the poorest children, 12,000 of them, to make sure they come mm. to school and learn, that's an investment. Mm. Now, we don't know the background to that decision, mm. um, but I hope that there was analysis of, is this the most appropriate place to be making uh, an efficiency in our budget, withdrawing money from that? I'm, I'm assuming that was done. Mm. Um, but I would just be making a plea that maybe that kind of decision um, is not about cutting expenditure, it's actually cutting investment. investment mm-hmm.
0: and, and also the, a lot of children perhaps may drop out because they can't afford to have uniforms and stationers well, a,
2: Yeah, We saw already without mm-hmm. even these cuts occurring, um, there were something like 26,000 children came back mm-hmm. to grades 9 and 12, about 300 dropped out. And that was without uniform stationary support being removed, I would like to think that maybe there is a reaction to that, and that we can make sure those twelve thousand get their school uniforms, particularly to get into the school with all of the safety measures in place, because um, these kind of austerity measures they 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 seem good for the annual budget, but they have a knock-on effect that could affect a child's life for for the next five, six decades because they dropped out of school. So let's think of these things as investments rather than expenditures.
0: I was also thinking about the constitutionality of a practice like this because the constitution guarantees that people will have access, children will have access to basic education. Now what does basic education mean? Should stationaries and textbooks be part of it, or is it just tradition? <laughs> if stationaries are supposed to be part of basic education that the state has to provide, perhaps the government should provide the stationaries and not cut the budget. Anyway, our time is up. So my final question that I ask all the uh, guests, what do you do to keep your leadership role up? <laughs> what do you do to keep yourself mentally and physically
2: Fit, agile and smart. Well, I'm very privileged to be living in Bhutan and, and have great support from from my wife and and from the team, the UNICEF team, and the wider UN family, um, and of course colleagues in the civil society and, and government. So that interaction has um, been really important to me to to be able to get through the the last year or so. Um, of course, having been a traveller all of my life, um, two or three months ago during pre the, the lockdown that just happened, we drove past the airport in Parra, mm. and I said, I just want to go inside and, and just push a trolley around, <laughs> to just remember how it used to feel to mm. travel. Um, so, um, I'm missing travel, and I can tell you as an Australian, I'm really missing the sea. Mm. Um, because I love the mountains, but I'm really at my best in Anyway, th- these are some of the things I haven't been able to, to um, keep myself resilient through by traveling mm-hmm. and by meeting friends and family around the country. But we've had a really, really good experience here. Um, and Mother Nature has also been brilliant to, to be in, in Bhutan. One of the things I've been doing is playing archery. Um, when no. I can. So we, we came to Bhutan without any clue about how to play archery, uh, but I've been very lucky and, and had a chance to that. Did play. you join a local team? Or N- you no, just informally. Thing. I'm not, <laughs> not good enough to um, Have you, you learned how to dance? <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I did though is as a child, I, my father introduced me to uh, model railways and uh, these the small trains and tracks mm-hmm. that run on electricity oh. and, so during the, the hours of the weekends uh, of COVID, I've been building, perhaps, I don't know if it is, but it, uh, be humble if mm-hmm. somebody else has it, but I think it's Bhutan's first ever yeah. railway, mm-hmm. is now running um, through a city that i built by hand. What
3: would UNICEF consider the biggest challenge for children in Bhutan to grow up in COVID's shadow? Young people in Bhutan are greatly affected by phobo, fear of missing out. With lockdowns and school closures, and most young children spending more time at home, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think COVID has had a positive impact on COVID? How much attention have we, the country, given to issues facing children during the pandemic, and how effective have the interventions been to support children in growing up in covid sharing?
2: Um, the biggest challenge um, that COVID has presented to children. I think there's, there's numerous challenges, and to identify one, it would definitely be the, the loss of learning opportunity for a whole year. And as I mentioned, I can't emphasize enough the importance of making sure children get back safely to school. Um, and also make sure that if in the event that we need to go down into lockdown mode again, schools Mm -hmm. should be the last Mm -hmm. institutions to get locked (coughs) down. And certainly we should not look at national lockdown unless Mm -hmm. community transmission is wide, wide widespread. But I also think there are other challenges that have occurred uh, because of COVID for children. We've mentioned some of the increases in violence. We've mentioned uh, children looking for jobs when perhaps they, they could have been continuing their education. Um, and of course, for, for children who are in school, schools are not just physical locations where learning takes place. They're, they provide mental health support. Um, there were some 74,000 children who relied on school meals that were delivered through the school system. Their nutrition has been affected, so we probably will see an increase in some micronutrient deficiencies and malnutrition uh, problems because of school closures. So again, getting children back into schools to get good meals through that school feeding program is really, really important. Um, And I I think there has been some disruption to the health services Mm. in general. Uh, I think the Ministry of Health has done a brilliant job um, but when we look at, for example, immunization coverage during 2020, Bhutan at the beginning of the year had a very, very high immunization coverage for children, 97% universal immunization. Um, and by during 2020, that had dropped to 87%. So we've lost ground in terms of providing immunization to children. We need to regain that ground. Uh, the health statistics haven't come out yet, but I'm I'm worried that we may have seen some increases in mortality rates and uh, increases in malnutrition prevalence because of COVID. So these are just some of the the, the challenges, protection, education, mm-hmm. and health that I think children have faced. The fear of missing out. Um, I, I have to say, I'm a little bit out of the mm-hmm. the school that knows what that actually means. Um, so <laughs> I think. COVID has restricted people, certainly children's ability to socially interact together, um, and uh, and of course travelling within the country particularly has been really, really <coughs> difficult. So one of the things which I think we have got a, a potential fear of missing out is um, this issue of social interaction that, that is really important for mental health. One thing I, I really hope that Bhutan does not miss out on, and I've got a big fear of this, is the speed with which we can get enough vaccines into the country. Mm. I mentioned at the beginning, there is a really big disproportion in terms of where the vaccinations are occurring, Um, and just a small number of countries are vaccinating their population. If you think of the world as an entire population that needs to be vaccinated, the more we can vaccinate Um, at the same time, or more or less at the same time, the better off the whole world's population will be. Um, And I really hope we can help the government. The World Health Organization and UNICEF are helping the government bring in enough vaccines and all of the equipment that's required. And I really hope that we don't have the fear of missing out on the vaccination and can start opening up our borders, start improving our travel restrictions, uh, within and outside of the country. So the citizens of Bhutan and the children of Bhutan don't miss out on life as it was. It can never return to particularly the normal life mm-hmm. now, but um, vaccination will help us get there. But it's not the silver bullet. Mm. Vaccination's not going to remove COVID-19 and its after-effects, its shadow. It'll help get us back to some sense of normalcy, but um, there, are, there are many other things that we need to be worried about. I'm particularly worried about uh, education system being rebuilt. I said at the beginning, the way the government has responded, Bhutan is probably a world leader now in terms of how it's handled the COVID situation. Other countries which fall into that category would be um, New Zealand in particular, um, in terms of how they've handled it. And They handled it in very similar ways to Bhutan, which was to have very good testing, very good contact tracing. They had local lockdowns when they needed to, but it it was done very well. And Bhutan has followed the same path and succeeded. Um, When schools closed, there was immediate response to that. The health system um, reorganized its resources so that essential services continued to be delivered. Civil society organizations went out of their way to make sure uh, protection issues were responded to. So there was a lot of effort put in um, by by government and society, and I must say by children and adolescents themselves, to to make sure their resilience to the the pandemic was built up. Um, And and I have to say, when I look at leadership around the world, Bhutan demonstrated how government and His Majesty could lead a country through this, Mm -hmm. with citizens also playing a vital role. When I look at the thousands of desups that were mobilized to help, these were just citizens of Bhutan doing what they needed to do. Um, I, you know, I personally felt extremely safe here, knowing that there was all this effort being made, and also very proud that UNICEF, in the background, could be part of all of these initiatives to help children throughout the country. I, I think there's some big lessons learned, and I go back to one critical one, which was A a study that shows that school closures, Mm. in hindsight, perhaps were not necessary. We could have kept everyone in school. And particularly in in the majority of parts of the country, which were not hotspots, we could have kept schools Mm. open. That's a lesson learned. Let's take that lesson now and move into 2021 and make sure we do everything to keep schools open.
0: Um, I would like to add something to the... Four more question: a fear of missing out. Um, if it is about fear of missing out in social interactions, learning opportunities, it's a very positive thing to have, uh, to be worried that you would miss an opportunity. But uh, one of the things that young people, if there are audience, uh, people in the audience who have this problem, I think uh, the fear of missing out on social media is a very dangerous uh, mindset that you are worried that you will miss out on something and would want to perhaps scroll down every friend's page to find out everything and be up-to-date with uh, what your friends have eaten or where they've been and so forth. That sort of thing can really sort of uh, draw you in and waste a lot of your time. So I think uh, social media fear of missing out is not a healthy trend. I think one should have that courage to just drop it.
3: Speaking about education reform, where do you believe the reform needs to focus? school administrations, teachers, parents, the government, the job market or other actors involved in it. The fifth question, what kind of impact have you observed as a result of COVID on the mental health of children? How should the country address this growing problem that children are growing on? The,
2: the reform question um, has pinpointed a lot of elements of what a reform should be and I wouldn't be picking any particular piece. Actually, what the question has inside it is a a reform in totality, which is what you'd want to see. If we're going to transform learning in the country, we have to transform it on every level. Not just in terms of content, in terms of delivery, uh, in terms of teacher training, in terms of examination and, and learning assessments, in terms of the skill sets that are going to be required for the 21st century, the problem-solving techniques, the social skills, the mindfulness, all of these things. <coughs> Parents have to play a role. Um, teacher training colleges have to play a role. Um, policy makers have to play a role. Uh, the support mechanisms around communities for learning have to play a role. So it—it it would ha- if we're going to make a significant leap in, a, in learning in the country, a reform must be in, in its totality. That takes a lot of work, but goodness me, it's worth it in terms of, of making sure children get into to early childhood, right from the time, even pre-birth, uh, we're thinking about how that child's brain is going to develop inside the womb, the good nutrition for mums at that time, they're, they're going to antenatal to make sure everything is healthy. It, learning starts there for a child. And as the brain develops, so we should put in place everything we possibly can to make sure a child's brain gets the benefits of it. So a, a total reform in education is, is in my view, uh, uni- a universal approach and involves everybody in doing it. Development partners that are here to support that transformation are, have networks of international experience to bring an offer to the country to help with that. I, I think the education reform that the, His Majesty's Casher talked about is absolutely um, fundamental and a real good opportunity for the whole country to to rally around and and change children's opportunities to learn and get improved. <coughs> the, the second question was about mental health. This is really really important question. Um, we had statistics where from. The month of March to uh, August, the number of people using hotlines to address um, mental health issues, children, parents, others, calling in to get psychosocial support. Um, When we ran a campaign just for a month in mid-October to mid-November, the number of calls was five times more because people became aware of mental health issues and where to seek help. So one of the, the, the challenges that we have is, firstly, to recognize that there are a lot of mental health challenges that people are going through. Mm. Helping them then seek the psychological first aid and the psychosocial support mechanisms, that's the second thing that must be done in terms of making sure people have access and can access mental health support. Without raising awareness on it and without giving opportunity for people to reach out for help, I'm very worried about statistics that may come out in a few months' time that will show that we've got an increase in suicides, we've had an increase in self-harm, we've had an increase in substance abuse, um, and I would rather we proactively try and prevent those numbers increasing by making health, mental health a really strong priority, make it multi-sectoral in its solution, and make sure services are available to people who need help. And now we can do that even in lockdowns because we've had remote psychosocial support services from school counsellors, from civil society organisations delivering help. Um, And I really applaud all of those efforts that the governments and civil society did. But I'm I'm sure uh, probably some of the listeners would agree with me. The mental health of children and adolescents and families as a whole, we must make it a national priority to safeguard against Increases in all of these problems, (coughs) violence, drug abuse, Mm. self-harm, and God forbid um,
0: suicide. Uh, Well, thank you. So I think uh, the education reform has to be pretty comprehensive. Um, And only then perhaps we will be able to bring a real change because in many cases we have had these interventions which are quite compartmentalised, works in silos. And that's why the intended... uh, impact never happened. I mean, education had many projects and many faces when they did um, yes. revisions and uh, even re- reformation of curriculum and pedagogy and so forth. But uh, this time, we, let's hope that it will be a comprehensive uh, yes. uh, intervention. Um, with that, uh, brings to the um, closure of this session. We offered you two um, titles as a token of can you tell us which books you chose and sure. why? Yes, these are the, the yep. two books or the, the posters. Well,
2: I'll, I'll start with this one. Uh, I'm sure many people uh, connecting in are familiar with this. This was back in the 1990s that uh, Nelson Mandela produced, authored this, Long Walk to Freedom. You know, And for, for two reasons, this book was such a significant part of shaping my thoughts about leadership. Firstly, Nelson Mandela is probably, perhaps after Mahatma Gandhi, the the next most moral and passionate leader that the world has ever seen. And was also, secondly, a champion of of human rights um, and never gave up. So his story in this book particularly showed me that you have to have tremendous resilience as a As a leader, you have to have a vision and a passion and a humility about you um, to take whatever's given at you in, in tough times and keep coming back so his his book about long to freedom is uh, really shows a and demonstrates a leadership style that is uniting and the reason I mention it now is because we 've seen leadership in other countries. Um, show the opposite of that. (laughs) Immoral and divisive. And we just need to remember individuals, men and women, who had these kind of morals and virtues as Nelson Mm -hmm. Mandela. The second one is on leadership as well. That's by John Maxwell, who's Mm -hmm. kind of a a contemporary uh, scholar of leadership. And he talks about leadership in a way that really appealed to me when I first read this book about having five different stages first you have you're a leader because of the position that you might hold it's a title but those who never progress beyond that lowest level of leadership in terms of thinking I'm the boss therefore you follow me mm-hmm. that's not leadership he then talks about permission as the second level permission is all about building trust and respect so that people give you permission to be their leader it's really important that you reach that stage the the third is about production which is where Leaders should be producing results. Uh, And then the interesting part of this is the the last two levels that he talks about, higher and higher levels that you can get to. The fourth is about people development. And to me, this is captured by the very simple phrase that great leaders create leaders. Mm. So you give opportunity and you support and you allow people to grow as leaders themselves. And the fifth he calls the pinnacle, which is having, in a, in, to extend this, great leaders who create leaders, who also create leaders. So you're looking at a leadership philosophy that is compassionate and that is always creating opportunities for anyone to be a leader. So these two books on leadership, mm-hmm. I thought, um, have been very influential on, on my journey as a leader. Um, and both of them talk about lifelong learning of leadership. So the moment you think you know everything is that full vase you talked about mm-hmm. earlier that is that is mm-hmm. not a leader any leader who says i know everything mm-hmm. has given up leading
0: thank you for sharing these two titles and um when in the future i have to list three books i hope the third one will be by somebody called bill parks <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much for joining us today as a guest and um What we have learned from you is, I think Bhutan, on the whole, has done so well in dealing with the COVID problem. Uh, Just one casualty out of 850 something patients is already quite an achievement. And um, um, we have set a leadership uh, role for the world, but then there's a much bigger uh, unseen problems, the shadows of COVID, the many things that you shared with us, and perhaps this is a good time for us to discuss and brainstorm on how we can really minimize these uh, indirect uh, problems that COVID has caused, and even response to COVID has caused. Um, so, um, it was a very, very fruitful discussion. As uh, today's uh, uh, focus was mostly on education, especially school education, School education has to be very universal. It's a universal need as well as a universal right. I have this uh, Bhutanese or Buddhist saying, knowledge is no owner, everyone is entitled to it. Thank you very much for joining us and
2: uh, good evening.